You know, our Lord comes to us and he says, look, in this life, you will have trouble. That's the part that's easy to receive, isn't it? It's like, yeah, I didn't need you to tell me that. So what's the part you needed? In this life, you will have trouble, but do what? Say it. Take heart. There it is. Why? Because I have overcome the world. I'm here to tell you this morning, no one else can say that and deliver and deliver. So last week on Palm Sunday, we began a study of the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And since I know many of you missed that, I'm going to rehearse a little bit. The first thing that I told you about these books is that they're actually not books. They're letters written by the Apostle Paul to a church, a group of Christians in the city of Corinth that he had spent a year and a half of his life getting up and running and off the ground, ordaining and installing elders, training up the leadership, turning it over to them little by little so that he could eventually turn the whole thing over to them, which is what he then in fact did. And then he left, as was his custom, to go to another city to do exactly the same thing. That's how he established all of these different churches. However, after he reached the city of Ephesus and started another church planning project, he received news from some people people back in Corinth that these guys that he had poured his heart and soul and mind and life into for a year and a half starting that church were having some pretty big issues. And since in the first century, he couldn't just jump on a plane and, you know, hop over there for a couple of days and help them clear it up. He did the only thing that he could do. And I'm thankful that it's the only thing that he could do. He wrote letters and here's why I'm thankful because we have them. They're called first and second Corinthians. And as I said last week, what makes these letters so fascinating, so poignant, so relevant to us is that they are written to a group of people, yes, in the first century, but hang on to that, who lived in a city just like ours. So let's rehearse. Last week I said their city was wealthy, our city is wealthy. Do we have to spend any time on that or can we just keep going? Got it? We're good, right? Their city was wealthy for the same reason that our city is wealthy. And what is that location? They were a city that embraced the arts and sports and entertainment and have everything that it took to do that. How about South Florida? I think we're good. Their city was a place of rampant and unrestrained sexuality. Do we need to develop that or are we good on that too? Seriously. We see ourselves in the mirror of this city, but Here's one of the other things that I said last week that I want you to kind of keep in mind today because it really forms a lot of the basis of the whole conversation. Their city was a place that was very liberal. It was very broad-minded. It was expansive in its viewpoints. And the reason for that is, well, because just like our city, which is its mere picture, it was a port city. And port cities all over the world, guys, throughout the history of man have been that way. And the reason for that is obvious because they're a place not just where people converge to for the commerce of goods, but they're a place where people from all over the world with all of their different religions and philosophies and worldviews and ideas and ethics and all of that and whatnot converge as well. And oftentimes buy second home. So it's a liberal city. Ours too. All right, so what that means, basically, is that these guys struggled then with the same struggles that we have now. And you're like, yeah, maybe not so much because, I mean, they're first century. How much alike can we be like these guys? Look, for all the things that have changed between the first century and now for humanity, and let's put it on the table, there's a lot of things, technology, science, education, all kinds of stuff. Got it. Here's what hasn't changed. The human heart, the human nature. Humanity has been made out of the same lump of clay, and it doesn't matter when you live, 
Human nature is the same. And so what that means, practically speaking, is that when we today, we who are made out of the same clay as these first century folks, are formed and shaped and molded by the same influences because we live in exactly the same kind of city as these first century folks, what's going to happen? We're going to develop the same pathologies. We're going to have the same issues. We're going to have the same struggles, and we're going to find ourselves in need of exactly the same instruction. If the Apostle Paul sat down today to write letters to the city of Fort Lauderdale, they would read a whole lot like this. Incredibly relevant. And the first pathology that he deals with as we now move out of the introduction of the letter which we looked at last week and then today into the actual instruction itself is the fact that these Christians and Corinthians, same clay, same city, same broad-mindedness, had begun in his absence to treat Christianity the same way that they would treat any other kind of a religion or philosophy. And here's how we know that, because of what they did with its preachers and teachers. They looked at the apostles and teachers of Christianity, and they began to treat them the same way that they had treated for centuries the the preachers and teachers of other religions and other philosophies that regularly rolled through their town. So what way is that? They kind of sat back. They sort of listened to them all. They decided which one they liked the best, who was the most articulate, who was the most persuasive, who was the most charismatic. And they said, you know what? I'm going to identify with this person here, just like they did with all of the other religions. And so Paul's coming to them and not just to them, to us too. Same clay, same city, same stuff, really. And he's saying, all right, agenda item number one, let's deal with that. Here's what you need to know. Jesus Christ is not like any other religious leader. Christianity is not like any other religion. And the Christian gospel is not like any other gospel that this world has to offer. He is crucified and He is risen. And He is substantially, markedly, vastly, radically different. Radically different. Don't miss that. So with that said, we pick up our study today, 1 Corinthians 1 beginning in verse 10. Paul says this, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you do what? That all of you agree, and that as a result of this agreement, there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment, but about what? Well, he says, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. You're like, who are Chloe's people? Actually, it doesn't matter. It just matters that they knew who Chloe's people were. In other words, Paul's coming to them and he's saying, hey, you guys know Chloe's people, and they did. Good, so then you know that I've got a credible source of information here, and here's what they've said. It's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers, but about what? He says, what I mean by that is, well, that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, which is just another name for the apostle Peter. Or, and here's the one that really shows that they're out of whack, that they don't get it. I follow Christ, as if Paul and Apollos, who was another Christian preacher and teacher, and Peter didn't also all follow Christ, and as if Paul and Apollos and Peter hadn't all been telling them, hey, don't follow me, follow Jesus. I'm not looking for disciples of me, I'm looking for disciples of Him. So Paul says, is Christ divided? And the obvious answer is no, Christ is one. His message is one. These guys are all on one team, Paul and Apollos and Peter. They're all preaching one gospel. They're all seeking to form one, not many, different people. 
And so Paul then using himself as an example and trying to make this point says, listen, let me ask you a question. Was Paul crucified for you? It answers itself, doesn't it? Well, no. And by the way, neither was Apollos and neither was Peter. Who's the crucified one? It's pretty evident, isn't it? So then he says, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Answer again, no. And in fact, you weren't baptized in the name of Apollos or Peter either. But Paul and Apollos and Peter all came into town preaching the same Christ, the same gospel, seeking to make you disciples of Jesus, not of themselves. And they all baptized the whole of you, some each bit a portion of you, in the name, not of themselves, but of Christ. He says, in fact, I thank God that I baptized none of you. And then he gives a list, except for Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. So I'm not contributing to this. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. And now he's having that aha moment that happens when you're over 50. (laughs) And he says, beyond that, here's the truth. I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. (laughs) Happens to me all the time. I'm thinking, did I do that wedding? You know, I'm like. Beyond that, he says, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize people into my name so that, you know, to gather folks around me because I've baptized you. And that somehow makes you different from anyone else who's been baptized in the name of Christ. So let me tell you what he sent me to do. He sent me to preach the unique and all-the-earth Christian gospel, which again is the message of a crucified, and don't miss it, risen Jesus. And Jesus sent me, he says, to preach this gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom. And they would have understood that because, again, that's what these itinerant preachers and teachers of other religions and philosophies would roll through town trying to persuade them with. By their rhetoric, by their excellent oratory skills, they were seeking to win people and persuade them to, I don't know, make a donation to their particular cause or something. And they were persuaded until the next most persuasive person came along. He's like, look, I don't want you to be persuaded by the words of men. I want you to be won by the power of God. He says, Jesus sent me to preach this gospel not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ, his life, sufferings, death, burial, and resurrection, all contained in that message, be emptied of its power. What is he saying? He's saying, listen, Jesus is not like any other religious leader. Christianity is not like any other religion. And hey, guess what? The Christian gospel, not like any other gospel that this world has to offer. And Jesus himself agrees. Listen to one of his most famous and in our city Be honest, man. Off-putting statements. Jesus says this. He uses the definite article. If you don't know what that is, it's the word the as opposed to the word a. He says, I am the way, like as in the singular way, not one of the ways, not a way, and the truth. So if that's something you're looking for, Jesus is like, look, I can save you some time on this. I'm the truth. I'm the life. And in case we don't understand the implications of that, he doesn't hide them from us, which is wonderful if you think about it. He says, let me play that out for you in real time. Practically speaking, here's what that means. No one comes to the Father, that is to say to God, except, well, through me, meaning through faith in me and in my life and in my sufferings and in my death and in my burial and in my resurrection from the dead on Easter. And here's the thing, that doesn't play any better in our town today than it did in their town way back then. Same city, same clay, same message. 
And same reaction. It doesn't play well. And I think, one, I think the reason for that is because in our city, even as in their city, okay, we don't just tolerate all religions equally. We think that all religions are equally true. Do you see the difference? Because it's not minor. It's a really, really big deal. It's one of the reasons why people say things around us all the time. And maybe even we have said this. And, you know, if we have, then I hope that you think about it. We say things like, hey, you know what? It doesn't really matter what religion you ascribe to. I mean, why should it? They're all equally true. That's the underlying assumption, is it not? Therefore, if you want to be a Christian, and that's great. Christianity is true for you. I'm just not into that. I'm into this over here. So that's what's true for me. And that guy over there, he's into something else. And that's what's true for him. And I just want to pause and go, really? Does that make any sense at all? The answer is no, but the answer is also, yeah, but I don't think about it, therefore, but think about it. You do not apply that logic to any other area of your life. And so when you say stuff like that, honestly, you make a hypocrite of yourself. Sorry, sorry, but it's true. We become hypocritical when we say stuff like that. Why? Because you would never stand out on Federal Highway with your best friend and say, hey man, there's a bus coming, it's going about 50, and I sincerely believe, therefore, this is going to be true for me, that if I step out in front of the bus, yeah, it's going to hit and kill me. But if you sincerely believe that you can step out in front of the bus, get hit and you'll be just fine, that's true for you. Knock yourself out. Go for it. I'd like to see what happens. <laughs> Nobody does that. What are we talking about when we're talking about Christianity and for that matter, any other religion? Because it's bigger than getting hit by a bus. Can you imagine it? Why? Because our lifetimes are a flash in the pan, man. They are here and they are gone. What we're discussing is eternity. It's what happens after the bus, figuratively speaking, hits you. And it's what you live for between then and now. And whether your life in the end really and truly makes a difference. Guys, if Christianity or any other world religion is actually true, then it is true for all of us, not just for some of us. And it's true whether we believe it to be true or not. Like Christianity isn't true because I believe that it's true, just like it isn't false because other people believe that it's false. I don't ascribe truth. Oh, it derives its truth from Tom. Well, then be afraid. You know, I mean, it's not the way it works for anyone. So I think we struggle with this because in our city, same clay, same city, as in theirs. Look, we don't just equally tolerate religions. We look at them and go, ah, they're all kind of the same. They're equally true. And we think they're equally true because we also assume, false assumption number two, that they are actually pretty much all the same. I mean, you know, it's all the same kind of idea, right? I mean, the point is to get everybody to behave better, isn't it? Keep everyone in line. That's the whole idea of the thing. It's got to be the same God. He's very creative. He's very diverse. He creates all kinds of different flowers and trees and bumblebees and all kinds of other stuff. Surely he's created a variety of different paths to him, and that's the analogy that we use. It's the analogy of the mountain. You've heard it. And God's at the top of the mountain. And then all of these other religions are just paths up the mountain. And some of them go around the mountain several times. So it's a longer walk, but it's not as steep. It's not as rigorous. Others go straight up the mountain, you know, and you're skinning your elbows and your knees, but you get there quicker. It's tougher, but you get up there faster. Others, you got to work real hard and you buy a ticket and it's a gondola ride. That's the one I'd go for if that was the deal. I mean, I would go for that. And it seems reasonable, doesn't it? Surely God would do that until you think about it. And we're way, we're moving all of us too fast to think. When you think about it, when you see it for what it is, it just, it falls apart. It's like a rock through a plate of glass. It just shatters. Let me give you some examples. 
And you tell me, are these little differences or large, okay? Christianity, Judaism, and Islam teach that there is one God. Hinduism, 300 million gods. Confucianism, no God. I don't know. I've got a problem with that. That seems like a rock through the window to me. Let's keep going. Christianity, Judaism, and Islam teach that God is a personal God. Buddhism denies the existence of a personal God. So what is it then? Some religions affirm life after death. Other religions say, nope, no life after death. And none of the religions, at least 100%, agree on what life after death, assuming that it actually exists, looks like. So when you get to the top of the mountain, guys, what do you have? Is, is there a God? Is there no God? Are there 300 million gods? Is he a personal God or are they personal gods? Are they impersonal gods or God? Is there a heaven? Is there an afterlife? Is there not an afterlife? And like, if there is, then what in the world does it look like? And how do you get up the mountain? Because there's disagreement there too. Now, I will say this, there's a lot more consensus on that. This is a major separating factor in regard to Christianity. So let's say, and I think it's about right, that there are approximately 40,000 different religions in the world, okay? So here we go. 39,999 of them say that you get up the mountain by your own efforts. Christianity is the only one that says, yeah, that's not going to work. So what that means, practically speaking, is that the gospel of all the world's religions can be basically boiled down into two simple rules. Rule number one, good people go to heaven, again, assuming that there's a God or gods and that there's a heaven, so let's not forget about those issues, but we'll just call it so we can discuss it, okay? Assuming that there's a heaven, good people go to heaven, all right, bad people do not. And again, it seems appealing. It's reasonable in some way, isn't it? I mean, you know, that's the way everything else in life works. If you work hard, you're rewarded, and we don't think about it. But think about it. Work it through. See how secure you feel in that. See, the problem, first of all, is that we don't know what good means. And that's not an insignificant thing, because like if good people go to heaven, you, you think you got to, I mean, what is good? Well, I don't know the answer to that. Well, that's an issue. And you say, no, no, you do know the answer to that because, Tom, we've got the Bible. You don't have the Ten Commandments. We have that kind of guidance. Well, I don't think you want to bring the Bible into this conversation at this point. I honestly don't. In last week, let me just rehearse. I said from Romans 3, just one chapter, here's what the Bible says about our ability to be good. Romans 3.10, there is no one righteous, meaning no one good, not even one. Romans 3.12, there is no one, you ready, who does good, not even one. Romans 3.20, no one will be declared righteous, that is to say, good in God's sight. How? By observing the law of God, rather through the law of God, what happens? We become conscious of our sin. He's saying, listen, let me give you the purpose of the law of God. It is to reveal to you that you're not good, so that it will drive you to Christ. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, why is that exactly? Because good according to God is the glory of God. In other words, the Bible comes to us with a definition of good, and it says, okay, you want to know what good is? Good is good as God. So look at His holiness. Look at His perfections and understand that that is the standard that you have to meet in every thought and every word and every deed and every intention of your heart and every motivation from the moment you're conceived until you're hit by the bus or whatever. 
So let's not even go there. I mean, if good people go to heaven, by that definition, we are done. Are we not? But what about the other religions? So they don't, they don't help either. There's no unified definition of that which is good that we can all agree on and go, yes, that's it. And I think terrorism provides a wonderfully clear illustration of that. There is a small portion of a large world religion that believes that, okay, when you strap bombs to your body, as people did this past week, and you go into an airport full of people standing around, moms and dads and kids, and and you blow yourself up for the purpose of blowing them up and taking as many of them with you as you possibly can, that that is good and rewarded in the afterlife. So if you're placing your trust in a system of belief that says that good people go to heaven and bad people don't, the first problem that you've got to somehow find a way to get over is the fact that, well, you don't know what good means. I don't know what good is. Problem number two, even if you can't arrive at a viable working definition of that which is good, how much good do you need to do to be a good person? You thought about that? I mean, what is that? And who decides? Don't ask the Bible. You've got to be perfect. So, and God decides. So, like, is it then 51%? Is it 60%? Is it 75%? Does college count? Because that matters. <laughs> that matters. No, really, I mean, like, how, how good do you need to be? Guys, the word gospel means good news. The gospel of every religion other than Christianity is not good news. It's like showing up for school on the first day of class and having the teacher walk in and going, okay, I need everybody's attention. I'm going to announce something incredibly important. Here's all you need to know about this class. Number one, the entire grade that you're going to receive in this class, you will receive based upon how well you do on the final exam. All right, now here's what I'm not going to do for you. I'm not going to give you a syllabus. I'm not going to give you a reading list. I'm not going to lecture at all. I'm not going to refer you to any materials. I'm not even going to tell you what the subject of the class is. So is it history? Is it math? Is it English? You know what? Take a guess. I'm not going to give you a grading scale. So what is an A? What is a B? What is a C? What is a D? I'm not going to say anything about that. And then finally, and perhaps most significantly, I'm not going to tell you when or where I'm going to administer the exam. By the way, your eternity hangs in the balance. Have a nice day. Class dismissed. That's it. Now, does that sound reasonable? Does it give you the warm fuzzies? Does it make you feel safe and comfortable? Does it? Or does it make a risen Savior who comes to you and says, listen, I know this might be a little off-putting to you, but if you actually think this thing through, you're going to thank me for this. I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So these people in Corinth have begun to treat Christ and Christianity and the Christian gospel the same way that they would any other religion. That's the gravitational pull of human clay in that city. <laughs> well, I recognize I feel that gravity. Don't you? Good grief, everything I've said is utterly offensive in some sense in this city. It's not a welcome message. But if it's true, then it is eternal life. So Paul comes and says, look, you might not, it might, it might, it might not be popular in your city, but here's, here's the deal. Um, 
There's no other religious leader like Jesus. There's no other religion like Christianity. And there is no other gospel. 39,999 over here. And the one that is Christianity over here. There's no other gospel like Christ. Guys, in Christ we have God himself. You want to talk about personal? Who instead of spurning a rebellious humanity, a very imperfect group of folks like me and you, became one of us to do what we could not do. He clothed himself in our humanity. He entered in as a man for humans. And he, as the God-man, lived the good-as-God life that we have all of us utterly failed in, in our thoughts and in our words and in our deeds and in our motives and in our intentions. Good grief, in our sleep, even our dreams are polluted. He did that for us. And then he offered his infinitely righteous, for he's God and man, and infinitely valuable, for he's God and man, and as a man for those who put their faith and trust in him. He willingly gave his life and endured in his body, mind, and soul, not just on the cross, but in his own heart and his mind. Infinitely. He's an infinite man. He can suffer infinitely. He suffered infinitely on Good Friday. Was buried and lay in the grave under the power of death until Easter morning when he came forth. And he did that so that everybody who comes to him and says, hey, you know what? Um, Yeah, not so good. And I believe in this Christ, unique in all the earth, with His gospel, Lord, here is my sin. And not just my sin, here's me. Here am I. Okay, we can know for sure now that our eternity is secure because it's not based on our performance. It's based on the performance of the one whose performance was validated once and for all and before all of humanity on Easter morning when he left behind an empty tomb for which there's no good explanation. Go study that. Go study that and you'll see. So if you're a believer in Jesus, then that's like right on and great news for you and happy Easter. That should make you happy. And we're going to sing in a minute and like belt it out. Okay. But if you're not a believer in Jesus, you have to consider that a final exam is coming and you don't have the syllabus, the reading list, the lectures, the topic, the date and place of the exam, nothing. And consider also that Jesus Christ, unique in all the earth, comes to you and says, hey, why don't you bring your sin and self to me? Why don't you find your forgiveness and eternal life in me? Why don't you know now for for sure that for forever it's good? Join my family and learn to live in this rhythm of grace. Learn to live for me. Have abundant and eternal life now. So that's his invitation. And if you accept that invitation, then you have every reason to take heart. In this world, you will have troubles. But take heart. Jesus alone can say, for I, Christ, have overcome the world. In my life, sufferings, death, burial, and then the big explanation point there at the end, resurrection. So that's his invitation. 
and I hope that you'll consider it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the love that you have demonstrated for unlovely creatures like us. People, Lord, who were created by you and by creation ourselves belong entirely to you and owe to you the whole of our lives, the worship of everything that we do, and have chosen instead to make ourselves God and to live for ourselves. We have all of us done it. Together we have all of us fallen away. And yet you did not give up on us. But in love for us, you sent your Son into this world to live the life we've not, to suffer and die the death that we deserve that we might through faith in Him, the risen Savior, be made alive in Christ, be washed and made clean, and know for sure that when the bus comes, whenever or however that may be, God, we will meet You face to face. And so then I pray, Lord, that You would draw us in humility and irresistibly to Yourself, that we would humbly come acknowledging that um, we have fallen and we can't get up. We've soiled ourselves. We've made ourselves filthy in such a way that we cannot make clean. Help us to see our Savior for who He is, to bring to Him our sin, to ask for His forgiveness, to give to Him our lives, ask Him to take them and to use them such as they are to do things that in the end and for forever make a difference. Do these things we ask for Your glory and for the good of this Your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.